Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. We're glad that you are here. I'm glad we can say Merry Christmas uh, because in our world right now, there isn't a lot that's merry. It's a dark and uncertain and dangerous world. And we could use some good news, could we not? And we have some good news this morning. Uh, in the now classic and vintage movie that I quote far too often, The Two Towers, part of The Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, just before the attack on Helm's Deep, is examining the sword, the old sword of a young teenage boy who's been pressed into service to fight Saruman's army of Urukai. As the boy relates the fears going through the camp, Aragorn looks at him and says, there is always hope. And now we meet another teenage boy in this passage before you in Matthew chapter 1. Not much older than that boy in Lord of the Rings, also with many doubts. His fiancée is somehow pregnant. He's thinking of separating or divorcing from her. They have not been intimate. This is a scandal that will ruin the reputation of both families. And an angel comes to him and announces something, that the baby is indeed a miracle, a miracle from God out of a virgin womb of his betrothed and his beloved Mary. The angel says to Joseph that this baby that is coming is going to give the world light in the darkest of times. Someone is coming who can walk into the depths of despair and replace despair with hope. Someone is coming to give a never-ending hope, an unstoppable, inextinguishable hope, and always hope. And the angel gives that hope a name. The angel says to Joseph, you will name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And then the writer of this passage, Matthew, says that Jesus and the announcement fulfills an ancient prediction or prophecy about the coming of God to earth, and that prophecy calls Jesus by another name, Emmanuel. God with us, two names that announce the redemption of the world, two names with two meanings, two promises, two beams of light to crack the darkness, two anchors of hope that can secure you against any storm that life may throw at you, two names. He is Jesus who saves his people from his sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Firstly, you are to name him Jesus. The angel announces to Joseph that this fiancé will have a child out of wedlock. It seems crushing, but this is a supernatural birth of a supernatural human being, indeed a divine human being, one who has both the ability and the desire to save people from their sins, and that is Jesus. He has the ability to save us from their sins. The whole point of this story is that in the coming of Jesus, in His incarnation, the whole point of Christmas is this, that Jesus is God. God come down to do what God alone can do, and that is to save you and me from our sins, if we're willing to let Him do that. Because Jesus is not just some human being. He is God become human. He is the Word become flesh. The Word that was with God, the Word that is God, is the Word come down into humanity to save humans from our sins. How? By doing what He did at the end of His life. By taking our place in the judgment seat 
for our sins. The gospel tells us Jesus loved you and I so much that he agreed to be sent by God into human form, to become a vulnerable baby, and then to end his life a naked, vulnerable criminal hung on a cross to take the penalty for your pride and mine, your selfishness and mine, your envy and mine, our cruelty, our lust for power and pleasure and reputation. Jesus, being God, was perfect. Having no sin of His own to pay for, was therefore free to pay for ours. And that is the good news. His sacrifice was of infinite value. He's able to save all of us to the uttermost. He has the ability to save our sins because He is God in human flesh. He has the desire to save us from our sins. That's why He became human, being God. He came down. Out of the infinite compassion He has for us, He loved us so much that He could not stay up when we were in such trouble, so he came down. Not wanting to leave us in our darkness and despair, he brought light. Not wanting us to be stuck in our misery, he brought healing. He delivered us by his life and by his death. And I want to say this is your heart's deepest fear. I mean longing, actually. No matter where you are in your journey of faith, this is true of you. What uh, cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker says in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. He describes us, rightly I think, as fundamentally shaped by death and our fear of it and our desire to be victorious over it. And this is what he says. He says, we still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. We still want to merge ourselves with some higher meaning. We want to be rid of our faults, our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified, nothing less. We want redemption. We want to know our existence is not in vain. This, says Becker, is what we want, redemption from death and meaninglessness, justification from our faults. This is true of you and of me. That is our heart's deepest desire. We know it. You know it. Whether we're willing to fully admit it to each other or not, this is our deepest desire because we're sinful and selfish and mortal and wonder if we have meaning. We have a moral disease which corrupts us and alienates us from God and makes us wonder if we're worth anything. And so Jesus, who's worth everything, innocent, undefiled, God himself of infinite value, became guilty of everything, guilty of all our sins so we could be justified, we could be declared right, we could be vindicated as worthy of his infinite love, though we are deserving of infinite judgment. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He is Jesus. That is his name. He can save us. He wants to save us. He has come to save us. But that is not the only reason why he has come, because he has another name, Emmanuel, God with 
us. The beauty of Jesus' work for us, of saving us from our sins, is not his chief beauty. It was not even his chief goal. It was his penultimate goal. His ultimate goal was not to save us from our sins, but to bring us to full communion with God. Men and women, we were made for God. That is the meaning that Becker has correctly diagnosed we are lacking and longing for. We were made for relationship with God, communion and love relating to Him. And that is why He created us. He created us in His image so we could commune with Him, Genesis chapter 1. He gave us a garden to share communion with Him, Genesis chapter 2. When we sinned and walked away from him, Genesis chapter 3, he promised a day would come when we would be redeemed from this alienation, and this is what we see here. He gave us the tabernacle in the desert to commune with him despite our sin. He gave us the temple in Jerusalem to commune with him despite our sin. He always wants to be with us, and then he sent his living tabernacle, his living temple, Jesus Christ, so we could meet him and have communion with him forevermore. And his son, the tabernacle, went to the cross that we might be fully sacrificed for and have no sacrifice left that is needed. And we can have uninterrupted communion with God. Jesus in chapter 17 of John says, I glorified on you, on you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He was both talking about his life and his coming death, but later on in that prayer, he said this, I desire, Father, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. You see, that is what we were made for, to be with God. Jesus' heart beats fiercely for communion with us. It beats so today. In heaven at the right hand of God, he is longing to be with you. That's the joy that he wants to share with you. It's the joy at the heart of the Trinity, infinite joy. It's the joy that he wants to share with those made in his image. It's what he died for. It's the greatest party ever. And the sad secret of the world is that this world cannot give us that infinite joy. Only communion with the triune God can. This world can give us a pale imitation. It can give us some pleasures. It can give us some meaning. It can give us some joy. But a pale imitation it is. And it remaining restless we do. There was a professor at Cambridge named C.S. Lewis who wrote a book called The Weight of Glory who said this. It seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We fool around, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Men and women, that is what we were made for. Infinite joy. We were made in His image to delight in Him and experience His joy. And that's what Christmas is all about. He came into our darkness to give us that joy. C.S. Lewis again, to be loved by God, 
to be delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a child seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That is why Jesus came. This is the greater joy that Christmas announces, that the gospel promises is for you and for me. God is with us, and because God has come down to be with us, God in Christ has made sure that we can be with him if we want to. Do you want to? What do you long for? Because Christmas says a gift awaits you. Eternal communion with the infinitely joyful God can be yours. And if you are a Christian and have received Jesus, it is yours. Rejoice. Ten days ago, esteemed poet, songwriter, theologian Malcolm Geit debuted a new poem at Carnegie Hall in New York. It's called The Tale of Two Gardens. And it goes like this. God gave us all a garden once and walked with us at Eve, that we might know him face to face with no need to believe. But we denied and hid from him, concealing our own shame. Yet still he came to look for us and called us each by name. He found us where we hid from him. He clothed us with his grace. But still we turned our backs from him and would not see his face. And now he comes to us again, not as the Lord most high, but weak and helpless as we are, that we might hear him cry. The strong, he and he who clothes us in our need lies naked in that straw that we might wrap him in our rags who once we, where once we fled in awe. The strongest comes in weakness now, a stranger to our door. The king forsakes his palaces and dwells amongst the poor. And where we hurt, he hurts with us. And when we weep, he cries. He knows the heart of all our hurts, the inside of our sighs. He does not look down from above, but gazes up at us that we might take him in our arms who always cradles us. And if we welcome him again with open hands and heart, he will plant his garden deep in us, the end for which we start. And in that garden there's a tomb whose stone is rolled away, where we and all we've ever loved were lowered in the clay. But no, the tomb is empty now, and clothed in living light, his ransomed people walk with one who came on Christmas night. So come, Lord Jesus, find in me the child you came to save. Stoop tenderly with wounded hands and lift me from my grave. Be with us all, Emmanuel, and keep us close and true. Be with us till that kingdom comes when we will live with you. Amen. This Christmas, men and women, do not say, look what the world has come to, but instead say, look who has come to the world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as children. Let us pray. 
Father, I thank you, and I praise you for your goodness to us. Help us now to rejoice in that goodness, to receive the gift of you, and to get eternal life and communion because of what you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.